The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, Chapter 2, Sections 21 through 27, by John Calvin. What the Apostle here denies to man, he, in another place, ascribes to God alone, when he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, Ephesians 1.17. You now hear that all wisdom and revelation is the gift of God. What follows? The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Surely, if they require a new enlightening, they must in themselves be blind. The next words are, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, in Ephesians 1.18. In other words, the minds of men have not capacity enough to know their calling. Let no prating Pelagian here allege that God obviates this rudeness or stupidity when, by the doctrine of his word, he directs us to a path which we could not have found without a guide. David had the law, comprehending in it all the wisdom that could be desired, and yet not contented with this, he prays, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law, in Psalm 119, verse 18. By this expression he certainly intimates that it is like sunrise to the earth when the word of God shines forth, but that men do not derive much benefit from it until he himself who is for this reason called the Father of Lights in James 1.17, either gives eyes or opens them, because whatever is not illuminated by his Spirit is holy darkness. The apostles have been duly and amply instructed by the best of teachers. Still, as they wanted the Spirit of Truth to complete their education in the very doctrine which they had previously heard, they were ordered to wait for him in John 14.26. If we confess that what we ask of God is lacking to us, and he, by the very thing promised, intimates our want, no man can hesitate to acknowledge that he is able to understand the mysteries of God only in so far as illuminated by his grace. He who ascribes to himself more understanding than this is the blinder for not acknowledging his blindness. Section 22 it remains to consider the third branch of the knowledge of spiritual things, namely, the method of properly regulating the conduct. This is correctly termed the knowledge of the works of righteousness, a branch in which the human mind seems to have somewhat more discernment than in the former two, since an apostle declares, When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meantime accusing or else excusing one another. Romans 2, verse 14 and 15. If the Gentiles have the righteousness of the law naturally engraven on their minds, we certainly cannot say that they are altogether blind as to the rule of life. Nothing indeed is more common than for man to be sufficiently instructed in a right course of conduct by natural law, of which the apostle here speaks. Let us consider, however, for what end this knowledge of the law was given to man. For from this it will forthwith appear how far it can conduct them in the way of reason and truth, 
This is even plain from the words of Paul. If we attend to their arrangement, he had said a little before that those who had sinned in the law will be judged by the law, and those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. As it might seem unaccountable that the Gentiles should perish without any previous judgment, he immediately subjoins that conscience served them instead of the law, and was therefore sufficient for their righteous condemnation. The end of the natural law, therefore, is to render man inexcusable, and maybe not improperly defined. The judgment of conscience distinguishing sufficiently between just and unjust, and by convicting men on their own testimony depriving them of all pretext for ignorance, so indulgent is man towards himself, that while doing evil, he always endeavors as much as he can to suppress the idea of sin. It was this, apparently, which induced Plato, in his Protagoras, to suppose that sins were committed only through ignorance. There might be some ground for this, if hypocrisy were so successful in hiding vice as to keep the conscience clear in the sight of God. But since the sinner when trying to evade the judgment of good and evil implanted in him, is ever and anon dragged forward, and not permitted to wink so effectually as not to be compelled at times, whether he will or not, to open his eyes. It is false to say that he sins only through ignorance. Section 23 Themistius is more accurate in teaching that the intellect is very seldom mistaken in the general definition or essence of the matter, but that deception begins as it advances farther, namely, when it descends to particulars. That homicide, putting the case in the abstract, is an evil, no man will deny, and yet one who is conspiring the death of his enemy deliberates on it as if the thing was good. The adulterer will condemn adultery in the abstract, and yet flatter himself while privately committing it. The ignorance lies here, that man, when he comes to the particular, forgets the rule which he had laid down in the general case. Augustine treats most admirably on this subject in his exposition of the first verse of the 57th Psalm. The doctrine of Themistius, however, does not always hold true. For the turpitude of the crime sometimes presses so on the conscience that the sinner does not impose upon himself by a false semblance of good, but rushes into sin knowingly and willingly. Hence the expression, I see better course and approve it, I follow the worse. For this reason Aristotle seems to me to have made a very shrewd distinction between incontinence and intemperance. Where incontinence reigns, he says, that through the passion particular knowledge is suppressed, so that the individual sees not in his own misdeed the evil which he sees generally in similar cases, but when the passion is over, repentance immediately succeeds. Intemperance, again, is not extinguished or diminished by a sense of sin, but on the contrary, persists in the evil choice which it has made once made, but, on the contrary, persists in the evil choice which it has once made. Section 24 
Moreover, when you hear of a universal judgment in man distinguishing between good and evil, you must not suppose that this judgment is in every respect sound and entire. For if the hearts of men are imbued with the sense of justice and injustice, in order that they may have no pretext to allege ignorance, it is by no means necessary for this purpose that they should discern the truth in particular cases. It is even more than sufficient if they understand so far as to be unable to practice evasion without being convicted by their own conscience, and beginning even now to tremble at the judgment seat of God. Indeed, if we would test our reason by the divine law, which is a perfect standard of righteousness, we should find how blind it is in many respects. It certainly attains not to the principal heads in the first table, such as trust in God, the ascription of him of all praise and virtue and righteousness, the invocation of his name, and the true observance of his day of rest. Did ever any soul, under the guidance of natural sense, imagine that these and the like constitute the legitimate worship of God? When profane men would worship God, how often soever they may be drawn off their, from their vain trifling. They constantly relapse into it. They admit, indeed, that sacrifices are not pleasing to God unless accompanied with sincerity of mind. And by this they testify that they have some conception of spiritual worship, though they immediately pervert it by false devices. For it is impossible to persuade them that everything which the law enjoins on the subject is true. Shall we then extol the discernment of, my, of a mind which can neither acquire wisdom by itself nor listen to advice? As to the precepts of the second table, there is considerably more knowledge of them, inasmuch as they are more closely connected with the preservation of civil society. Even here, however, there is something defective. Every man of understanding deems it most absurd to submit to unjust and tyrannical domination, provided it can by any means be thrown off. And there is but one opinion among men, that it is the part of an abject and servile mind to bear it patiently, the part of an honorable and high-spirited mind to rise up against it. Indeed, the revenge of injuries is not regarded by philosophers as a vice, but the Lord condemning this too lofty spirit prescribes to his people that patience which mankind deem infamous. In regard to the general observance of the law, concupiscence altogether escapes our anaadversion, for the natural man cannot bear to recognize diseases in his lusts. The light of nature is stifled sooner than take the first step into this profound abyss. For when philosophers class immoderate movements of the mind among vices, they mean those which break forth and manifest themselves in grosser forms. Prave desires in which the mind can quietly indulge, they regard as nothing. Section 25 As we have above animadverted on Plato's error, in ascribing all sins to ignorance, so we must repudiate the opinion of those who hold that all sins proceed from preconceived gravity and malice. We know too well from experience how we fall, even when our intention is good. Our reason is exposed to so many forms of delusion, is liable to so many errors, stumbles on so many obstacles, is entangled by so many snares, 
that it is ever wandering from the right direction, of how little value it is in the sight of God in regard to all the parts of life Paul shows when he says that we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3.5 He is not speaking of the will or affection. He denies us the power of thinking aright how anything can be duly performed. Is it indeed true that all thought, intelligence, discernment, and industry are so defective that in the sight of the Lord we cannot think or aim at anything that is right? To us, who can scarcely bear to part with acuteness of intellect, in our estimation a most precious endowment, it seems hard to admit this, whereas it is regarded as most just by the Holy Spirit, who knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity, Psalm 94, verse 11, and distinctly declares that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, in Genesis 6, 5, Genesis 8, 21. If everything which our mind conceives, meditates, plans, and resolves is always evil, how can it ever think of doing what is pleasing to God? to whom righteousness and holiness alone are acceptable. It is thus plain that our mind, in what direction soever it turns, is miserably exposed to vanity. David was conscious of its weakness when he prayed, Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Psalm 119, verse 34. By desiring to obtain a new understanding, he intimates that his own was by no means sufficient. This he does not once only, but in one psalm repeats the same prayer almost ten times, the repetition intimating how strong the necessity which urged him to pray. What he thus asked for himself alone, Paul prays for the churches in general. For this cause, says he, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might work worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 Whenever he represents this as a blessing from God, we should remember that he at the same time testifies that it is not in the power of man. Accordingly, Augustine, in speaking of this inability of human reason to understand the things of God, says that he deems the grace of illumination not less necessary to the mind than the light of the sun to the eye. And, not content with this, he modifies his expression, adding that we open our eyes to behold the light, whereas the mental eye remains shut until it is opened by the Lord. Nor does Scripture say that our minds are illuminated in a single day. Nor does Scripture say that our minds are illuminated in a single day, so as afterwards to see themselves. The passage which I lately quoted from the Apostle Paul refers to continual progress and increase. And David, too, expresses this distinctly in these words. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. Psalm 119, verse 10. Though he had been regenerated and so had made no ordinary progress in true piety, he confesses that he stood in need of direction every moment.
in order that he might not decline from the knowledge with which he had been endued. Hence, he elsewhere prays for a renewal of a right spirit, which he had lost by his sin. Psalm 51, verse 12. For that which God gave at first, while temporally withdrawn, it is equally his province to restore. Section 26. We must now examine the will, on which the question of freedom principally turns, the power of choice belonging to it rather than the intellect, as we have already seen. And at the outset, to guard against its being thought that the doctrine taught by philosophers and generally received, namely, that all things by natural instinct have a desire of good, is any proof of the rectitude of the human will. Let us observe that the power of free will is not to be considered in any of those desires which proceed more from instinct than mental deliberation. Even the schoolmen admit that there is no act of free will unless when reason looks at opposites. By this they mean that the things desired must be such as may be made the object of choice, and that to pave the way of choice, deliberation must proceed. And undoubtedly, if you attend to what this natural desire of good in man is, you will find that it is common to him with the brutes. They, too, desire what is good. And when any semblance of good capable of moving the sense appears, they follow after it. Here, however, man does not, in accordance with the excellence of his moral nature, rationally choose and studiously pursue what is truly for his good. He does not admit reason to his counsel, nor exert his intellect, but without reason, without counsel, follows the bent of his nature like the lower animals. The question of freedom, therefore, has nothing to do with the fact of man's being led by natural instinct to desire good. The question is, does man, after determining by right reason what is good, choose what he thus knows? and pursue what he thus chooses. Lest any doubt should be entertained as to this, we must attend to the double misnomer. For this appetite is not properly a movement of the will, but natural inclination. And this good is not one of virtue or righteousness, but of condition, namely, that the individual may feel comfortable. In time, how much soever man may desire to obtain what is good, he does not follow it. There is no man who would not be pleased with eternal blessedness, and yet without the impulse of the Spirit, no man aspires to it. Since then, the natural desire of happiness in man no more proves the freedom of the will than the tendency in metals and stones to attain the perfection of their nature. Let us consider in other respects, whether the will is so utterly vitiated and corrupted in every part as to produce nothing but evil, or whether it retains some portion uninjured and productive of good desires. Section 27. Those who ascribe our willing effectually to the primary grace of God seem conversely to insinuate that the soul has in itself a power of aspiring to good, though a power too feeble to rise to solid affection or active endeavor. 
There is no doubt that this opinion, adopted from origin, and certain of the ancient fathers, has been generally embraced by the schoolmen, who are wont to apply to man in his natural state the following description of the apostle. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. To will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Romans 7.15 and verse 18. But in this way, the whole scope of Paul's discourse is inverted. He is speaking of the Christian struggle, touched on more briefly in the epistle to the Galatians, which believers constantly experience from the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. But the spirit is not from nature, but from regeneration. That the apostle is speaking of the regenerate is apparent from this that after saying, in me dwells no good thing, he immediately adds the explanation, in my flesh. Accordingly, he declares, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. What is the meaning of the correction in me, that is, in my flesh? It is just as if he had spoken in this way. No good thing dwells in me, of myself, for in my flesh nothing good can be found. Hence follows the species of excuse. It is not I myself that do evil, but sin that dwelleth in me. This applies to none but the regenerate, who with the leading powers of the soul tend towards what is good. The whole is made plain by the conclusion, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Romans 7, verses 22 and 23. Who has this struggle in himself, save those who, regenerated by the Spirit of God, bear about with them the remains of the flesh? Accordingly, Augustine, who had at one time thought that the discourse related to the natural man, afterwards retracted his exposition as unsound and inconsistent. And, indeed, if we admit that men, without grace, have any motions to good, however feeble, what answer shall we give to the apostles who declare that we are incapable of thinking a good thought, 2 Corinthians 3.6? What answer shall we give to the Lord who declares by Moses that every imagination of man's heart is only evil continually in Genesis 8.21? Since the blunder has thus arisen from an erroneous view of a single passage, it seems unnecessary to dwell upon it. Let us rather give due weight to our Savior's words. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. John 8.34 We are all sinners by nature. Therefore we are held under the yoke of sin. But if the whole man is subject to the dominion of sin, surely the will, which is its principal seat, must be bound with the closest chains. And indeed, if divine grace were preceded by any will of ours, Paul could not have said that it is God which worketh in us both to will and to do. In Philippians 2.13 Away then, with all the absurd trifling which many have indulged in with regard to preparation, although believers sometimes ask to have their heart trained to the obedience of the divine law, 
as David does in several passages, such as Psalm 51, verse 12, it is to be observed that even this longing in prayer is from God. This is apparent from the language used. When he prays, Create in me a clean heart, he certainly does not attribute the beginning of the creation to himself. Let us therefore rather adopt the sentiment of Augustine. God will prevent you in all things, but do you sometimes prevent his anger? How? Confess that you have all these things from God, that all the good you have is from him, all the evil from yourself. Shortly after, he says, Of our own, we have nothing but sin.'" 